Well, welcome into the uh, Solar Insights Podcast, everybody. My name is Eric Starr. I've got David, David Ramel, one of the co-hosts of the Locked on Heat podcast and writer for various outlets about NBA basketball. How are you doing, David? I'm doing great, Eric. Thank you so much for having me on. Wonderful. Good to have you on. Um, apparently, we have some breaking news in here about Justice Winslow. Why don't you give us the lowdown? Well, the team just tweeted out at 9 o'clock tonight that uh, Justice Winslow, in his second year with the team, will be undergoing surgery tomorrow for a torn labrum and will be out for the rest of the season. So he missed time earlier this year with a wrist injury, kept him out for 16 games, came back, still struggled with his shot, never really got quite in sync, and then apparently missed a couple games for a shoulder soreness, but apparently it's gotten a lot more severe than we had expected, and he's out for the rest of the year. Well, that is unfortunate for sure. And uh, it's interesting because I was thinking about that a draft, because uh, that was the Devin Booker draft in 2015. And I was, when I was doing pre-draft, I thought Booker was going to go way higher. And I was aiming for Justice Winslow. Obviously, it worked out in terms of Devin Booker being a superstar in the making. But what did you see from Justice Winslow in his rookie year? And kind of, obviously, he was having trouble this year. But what did you see in his game? Do you have any good comps for him, what he could be? Well, that's, that's tricky. I think at this point, um, you know, last year he was coming off the bench mostly, and, you know, that was a very different team than the one that's constructed currently. You know, they had a veteran core. Chris Bosch was still available for the first half of the season. They had Luol Deng there. They were trying to get the most out of Whiteside. Uh, they had Goran Dragic working his way into backcourt with Dwayne Wade. So that was the lineup there, and then Winslow really wasn't starting many games. Um but he did show promise, particularly on the defensive end. So with him, it's not really about judging his offense so much about the other little things. He, he is very skilled as a defender. Um, he's also a great rebounder. He's also a very good in traffic in the sense that he really does know how to push the ball up and, and he can create scoring opportunities. And that's kind of the role that we had seen for him in his second season. With Dwayne Wade gone, obviously, to Chicago, you know, covering him in summer league, Wes Goldberg and I, my co-host for Locked On, on he talked to uh, head coach for the summer league team. Um, drawing a blank here, uh, God, from Michigan, Jawan Howard. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, we talked to Jawan Howard, <laughs> and, and he had talked about uh, you know Justice Winslow's expanding role there, and that was you know during the week when we found out that Wade would be going with Chicago. So we thought that you know Winslow would be you know get the ball in his hands more often, be able to create more opportunities there. Uh, and that just really hasn't panned out uh, this season. You know, I think the part of the problem is that the lineup has been changing so much that we really haven't seen what he can do on a consistent basis. The defense is there for sure. The shot creation is there sometimes. Um, unfortunately, the offense in general, his shooting in particular, is still a question mark. So I, I think as far as comps are concerned, I know a lot of people want to use the Kawhi Leonard one. That's not really applicable um, I think the other possibilities for him to be a poor man's Draymond Green at this point. Mm -hmm. I think ideally he could start at the power forward position. He mostly plays small forward, but he's even started at center during the playoffs last season. I'm not sure if you recall that, but um, that was mostly due to injury, but he did start at center. So I think for Winslow, ideally he'd be coming off as a power forward um, and, and creating shot, you know, shot opportunities for others. And, and, and he has a really great first step. He's very quick off the dribble. Um, unfortunately, the shooting just isn't what it's supposed to be at this point. Yeah, is he uh, tall enough to really be center material or power forward material? 
It's it's you know I've seen in my covering the league more and more that uh, you know six eight really isn't six eight, and I think he's listed at six seven and maybe three inches of that is hair, but he's <laughs> strong enough and, and bulky enough and certainly quick enough. So I think he creates a lot of matchup, you know, problems and mismatches, uh, you know, as a power forward, and he can he can certainly guard. He's guarded LeBron James, who you know can obviously change positions. He's guarded Paul George, who's played the power forward position, and and he's held his own on both occasions. And he's also guarded James Harden, and, and was able to limit him pretty well. So I mean, he's he was tested his rookie year, not so much this season, but um, I think he can make the adjustment to power forward. Yeah, I, I definitely didn't see him that going that big, but I mean. Uh, I've always, I've said this before on the podcast, but uh, if PJ Tucker, who's listed at six four, but I'm six seven, he's probably like six two. I was stood next to him one time um, when we were I was at the at the arena. I was like, if he could play power forward, which he has a lot this season, then Justice Winslow can play. I mean, I mean that's amazing. It's amazing, but you have to be really strong. And I mean, PJ Tucker's shoulders are like as big as my head, so he can he can really move people around in the paint. Um, so let's uh, get back. Let's, uh, that was really good. Thanks for that. Uh, let's get back to the game that happened last night. The uh, Suns ended up winning ninety-nine to ninety. Um, the, uh, on the ESPN page, I see this um, this great snippet. It says the last time the Phoenix Suns beat the Miami Heat, Devin Booker was thirteen years old and rookie Marquise Chris was twelve. Because there's no way the Suns were going to beat the Heat during the Big Three era, but it's kind of amazing that they didn't even get one game in that span. What did you see from the game? Obviously, there were lots of injuries. Why don't you list them out for us a little bit and uh, tell us what you saw? Yeah, most of the starting lineup was out. Um, you know, uh, Justice Winslow obviously was out for shoulder soreness. Hassan Whiteside had some burning in his eyes and was sitting. He didn't even make the trip. Uh, Miami's actually currently in a, on a West Coast road trip right now, so he mm-hmm. wasn't even available with the team. Tyler Johnson. Uh, was out. He's, he's been Miami's best spark plug off the bench, and he was out due to a migraine. Uh, Deion Waiters has missed a number of games, and he's been you know alternating between. The, he, he had the starting position before he tore his groin, and he's just recovered. He's actually, as we record this, he's he's liable to be playing tonight versus the Sacramento Kings. So he's back in the lineup for the first time, and I think close to a month. So just an, even James Johnson, who's also another quality bench player. Uh, it was out yesterday due to food poisoning of all things. So it, this team just could not field a quality lineup. And, and, and you know, um, I forgot. Uh, sorry, uh, Josh uh, McRoberts was out also. He, he's he's fractured his foot yet again. So he's going to be missing a, a number of games. Uh, he had been starting recently, and uh, you know, finally getting into a, a groove offensively after years of being in and out of the lineup with Miami. So. <laughs> practically half the roster. So we're starting Rodney Magruder, who at the start of the season was liable to be with the D-League affiliate in Sioux Falls. He gets, you know, I guess 33 minutes last night, eight points. Uh, Willie Reed, who was supposed to be our backup uh, to Whiteside, he played 32 minutes and had his career high, 22 points. This was a breakout game for him. Mm-hmm. So that was basically, uh, you know, the, the, the best, most positive thing from last night's game. And then, of course, Luke Babbitt, who's been so in, inconsistent. Look, at this point, you know, all he really does offer is, you know, three-point shooting, and that hasn't even been the case for most of the season. Mm-hmm. He finished just three of 11 last night. So a really, really rough showing for Miami. Yeah, it was kind of funny. I had... I had heard, seen you and Wes and other people tweeting about Josh Magruder, and I kept thinking it was like a, 
until I, I couldn't believe that, that was actually a name. I kept thinking it was like a nickname of somebody. I was no. like, how is this an actual person? And I thought, he's pretty good. Obviously, so that was kind of interesting. Um, tell me a little more about um, what you've seen from Whiteside and kind of how he's matured. I mean, he it, two years ago, he was not in the league, and now he is. He just got a max contract, I believe. And so it's, it's, it's kind of, tell us the journey of him and what he's like now as a player, as a person. Well, that's open for debate, and I think uh, if you know most of our listeners would probably hear our, our takes on on Whiteside. It's a great story when you consider that you know obviously years ago he was drafted by the Kings, couldn't really break that lineup, um, had some issues, you know theoretically that were or allegedly that were about his attitude and whether or not he was uh, ready to to you know handle. A role in the in the NBA, and he, he didn't seem suited for backing up Boogie Cousins, who's you know obviously and well known as a temperamental person himself. But Whiteside just couldn't cut it. Uh, he was waived there, picked up by the Memphis Grizzlies, couldn't hack it there, and of course spent uh, some time playing in Lebanon. Was actually playing with his local YMCA affiliate when he got the call from Miami to come down and, and play with uh, the team's D League affiliate in Sioux Falls, and that's where they really start to see his potential and. Uh, you know, he was just very impressive right away. And, and uh, it, it so happened that Miami was transitioning from the loss of LeBron James. And, you know, they were starting Chris Bosh at center. Uh, and that works much more effectively when you've got, you know, LeBron James playing the power forward or Shane Battier kind of helping defensively at the four as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but with those players gone, um, you know, you needed something different. And so I think they, they started playing Whiteside more and more. Chris Anderson, the Birdman, got hurt for a little while there, so then Whiteside all of a sudden gets his opportunity, and he really starts to flourish. That first season in particular, uh, I think he had a triple-double with blocks, had a really big showing against the Los Angeles Clippers and DeAndre Jordan, and starts showing signs of superstardom. Well, in his second year, we see those flashes. He's he's assured of a a starting position now. Bosch has slid down to the power forward position. Uh, but there's still inconsistency from him there. And while you don't want to refer too much at, on the uh, you know, to the alleged mental issues that might have been there in the past, it seems like those kind of cropped up. He wasn't necessarily ready to handle it. Uh, at least that was the perspective, is that he wasn't mature enough to handle an increased role. Um, and eventually he was benched. Amari Stoudemire, a name that you're familiar with in Phoenix, obviously, he was starting, and Hassan Whiteside was coming off the bench for most of the season, and it really, really worked, actually. Uh, you know, Stoudemire, obviously older at this point, no longer the athlete he was back in his son's days, but um, he you know, provided some quality of minutes there. He could get the occasional scoring, put back, et cetera, uh, maybe knock down a 15-foot jumper. Uh, and then Whiteside would come in and dominate second-string bigs, and it really worked for him, kind of built his confidence a little bit. And obviously he was still putting up big numbers, so I think he was happy with that, although he did indicate eventually that he wanted a bigger role. And then this summer, Miami was obviously in a, in a major crossroads as far as how to develop the team. You know, Bosch was still liable to get to you know, miss a significant amount of time. Um, they had to make a, a decision regarding Dwayne Wade, and they were still hoping to bring Kevin Durant somehow into the fold. They were one of those teams that had secured a meeting with him during the start of free agency. Mm-hmm. So they thought that the best thing to do would be to lock up Whiteside for a significant amount of money. That's what it took. It was basically down to either Miami or Dallas as the most obvious suitors, uh, and Miami was able to outbid uh, Mark Cuban. So uh, they locked him up, and then unfortunately Dwayne Wade moved on. Durant was never really part of the equation. And now all of a sudden 
uh, Whiteside has become the team superstar. I, I should mention, of course, that Chris Bosh is no longer eligible to play with the team due to a, a third recurrence of, of blood clots in his system. So now all of a sudden you've got from a complementary role player a couple seasons ago to a much more expanded role, a guy who has to create offense and, and be the team's anchor defensively. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure that he can handle that workload. It's, mm-hmm. He's probably best suited to be a complimentary player a la Jordan in Los Angeles. And I think um, you know, he's a little bit better perhaps than Jordan. Um, you know, he's got Certainly he's got range. He's got the capacity to do a lot of things offensively. He likes to shoot an 18-footer, although that really does upset me and, and, and some other Heat <laughs> fans to watch him hoist does when he faces up the basket. He doesn't really have much of an offensive repertoire either. When he's back to the basket, despite his size and athleticism, he's kind of limited, and he'll also be willing to take shots even when he's double or triple team. So there still hasn't been much evolution and maturation from that perspective, and I'm not sure that there ever will be. And so that's my concern for him is that right now the team is a different one than it was last year, even what they expected it to be during the summer when they signed him for this big contract. And so you're not sure whether or not Whiteside is either mentally or physically capable of handling the workload of being the team's you know, singular star. Yeah, I think that his uh, role might be best of a Bogut for last year. Play, be the center who doesn't have to do much on right. a team that moves the ball, and you are absolutely not the focal point, but you can still thrive. But uh, we'll, I don't know if he'll ever be in that position during his career, especially with the locked up and big money on a rebuilding Heat team. It seems right. like you're saying that he has more offensive skills than a Howard, Dwight Howard or a DeAndre Jordan. Like the, but he has the post-up skills of a Dwight Howard who should never post up but should always be in pick and roll. Yeah, I mean, he, he does have a, a pretty decent face-up game. He, he likes to hoist the jumper. The numbers aren't as great, obviously. I'm not sure exactly what he's shooting at this point um, as far as the, the 18-footer is concerned. But he does hoist them up, and he does create the mismatch there defensively. Um, he's got a good spin move that he goes to infrequently. That He's you know been able to turn that into a pretty reliable shot. Um there, there's there's capacity for growth there, and I think we've seen these building blocks. It's just we've also saw them last season, and he hasn't really taken that next step in his evolution. And you know, as you well know, the greats always try to add something to their game, always mm-hmm. try to keep things fresh and change things up. And he he's basically stagnated at this point. The fact that he's getting more usage, more touches, uh, is translated into larger, bigger, you know, gaudier numbers but not necessarily better or more efficient ones. And I think he's, he's lost some efficiency this season as well. And, and, you know, the numbers are a little bit odd with him. Obviously, there's the much-talked-about statistic that the team's actually better you know, defensively mm-hmm. with him off the floor, things of that sort. Uh, and there's also the fact that he is, unlike what you pointed out, how he probably flourished in a, in a pass-friendly offense, he is definitely a ball stopper. He's a black hole. You toss it into him, you're not getting it back. And like I said, he'll be willing to hoist up a shot even when he's got he's guarded by multiple defenders, and, and that usually kills the possession there and, and leads to an easy turnover. And yet he is the defensive juggernaut that can turn a game, for sure. Yeah, I mean, there is that potential there. I mean, we, we've seen him be engaged and, and, and not just chase blocks, which, you know, I thought that was part of the problem there. Uh, you know, in the first couple of seasons, is that he looked he looked like he was just trying to pad stats. Uh, you know, it wasn't always the case, but there were some games where he certainly looked like he was being a little too aggressive, trying to go for that block, and he was horrific 
on pick and roll defense. He was never going on to the to the, the screen. You know, he was he was going past the screener. He never got to the ball handler. He would just let him basically have his way in offense, and uh, and that was something that, that really cost the team during the, in the last couple of seasons. He's somewhat better at it this year, although his screening offensively is, is taking a step back. He's just not a very good screener for some reason. But defensively, he he can be engaged. He does get those blocks. He does ignite the fast break opportunity. Something that's particularly good in tandem with Dragic, who, as you well know, likes to get the ball out and transition quickly. And so that, when when he's engaged and he swats the shot, he always does a great job of keeping the ball in bounds. And he usually swats it to a ball handler who's able to ignite the offense. And that's worked particularly well. Yeah, I was actually about to mention that 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 was kind of the the uh, transition between somewhat a younger player to a more mature player in terms of blocks and defense is doing what Tim Duncan does is always keeping that ball in play to ignite the fast break for sure. Um, well, um, I do want to get to obviously the Wade and Bosch situations very briefly in a little bit, but first I want to mention about Dragic. Um, what have you seen from him? One thing have you noticed, have you noticed that on the fast break he never passes it? <laughs> yeah, but uh, part of the reason is I don't think he's actually he, I don't think there's anybody who keeps up pace with him to be honest with you. Sure. He's just so much quicker than everybody else on this team. Um, especially last year when it was a bunch of veterans, slower guys like Dang and Wade who just couldn't keep pace with him and uh, he was basically going one and three and still finishing at a high percentage. So he's a really he good yeah. Yeah, he's a really good finisher for sure. Absolutely, and absolutely. Really good. And very uh, yeah, he's, he's been great, to be honest with you. I, I mean, I think he's Miami's most dynamic player, uh, probably their most consistent one, even at this point in his career. Uh, and, and I know he's he's been included in a lot of trade talk, uh, especially now that he's increased his value and, and he's on a relatively better deal than when he was first signed. I think you know you could say that mm-hmm. he was probably a little too expensive, but now with the expanded cap, it's probably a little bit more friendly for other teams to accept. And, and he's still a really good quality player. I think his knees have been saved for many years, you know, due to the fact that he was basically coming off the bench and wasn't getting a lot of minutes. So I think he could probably still be a, a really good active player for a few years left. Yeah, we could look it up. But what is he like? Twenty nine now? Twenty nine? I think he's thirty. I think he's Dragic is already thirty. Oh my goodness. I remember when he was like 22. Oh my goodness, six. Um, so let's. Uh, I want you to briefly talk about the uh, the Wade and Bosch situations and what you're hearing from Miami and how it's all worked out. Let's start with the Wade Wade situation in Chicago. Well, there's not really much to say that hasn't really been discussed. You know, I think uh, they were confident that the Heat front office was confident that they could do the same thing that they had done in 2015, basically mm. extend a low-ball offer and, and that Wade would be more than willing to accept it so that he could stay with the only team that he's ever played for uh, and to give Miami the kind of flexibility that they've always retained in the past to add a big name in free agency or via trade of some kind. Uh, and, and Wade apparently just didn't want to have anything to do with that. I think he wanted to get paid. You know, there's always been the talk that he was not the highest paid player of team. That's absolutely correct, although I think that's been somewhat exaggerated. Like ever, but, like uh, for, for the listeners, he's never been the highest paid player on a team. It was Shaq and other people, and then LeBron or, or Bosch, I forget which one. Yeah, um, both. Both of them were more paid, yeah. were paid more than he was. Uh, Jermaine O'Neal during two seasons there in uh, 2008. <laughs> So, yeah, so he, he's never been the team high. I mean, and, and, look, part of that was the fact that you know, he was drafted in 2003. You know, Shaquille O'Neal came over in 2004. 
uh, you know, and, and he was obviously going to be the team's highest-paid player at that point. You know, Wade was still in a very good rookie deal uh, that wasn't worth a lot of money at that point in time. So, I mean, it, it was just it just never worked out in his favor where he could get that big money. Um, and, and you know, I guess he wanted to cash in on that at this point in his career. He, he still thought he still had at least three years left to play and to to play at a high level, and so he wanted to get compensated for that. And so, um, despite the the friendship and, and the good relationships that he built over 13 seasons with Miami, he thought it was time to move on. And I think he had a lot of people in his ear. Uh, I think he had, you know, other players, guys like LeBron, you know, Chris Paul, Carmelo Anthony, guys that, you know, probably are close friends and probably understandably say, you know what, you want to get paid. You know, that's your job is to get paid as well as you possibly can. And if you can't do it in Miami after 13 seasons of being the team superstar, then you go wherever you have to in order to find that money. So I think a lot of Heat fans are, are very upset. I, I know a lot of people personally just won't watch the team now without Wade there. He, they, you know, they'd become fans of the team while he was there. He'd been there through so many different eras, you know, before Shaq, after Shaq, the big three, etc. cetera. Uh, and, and they really identified him as the best player in a Heat franchise history, and, and understandably so. So now with him gone, they just – they can't stomach watching this team without Wade there, so it's been difficult for them. Yeah, I mean, and even and Wade goes to Chicago, where he's from originally, and yeah. he just kind of tries to thrive with nobody who can shoot. It's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> uh, so I wanted to talk about the Bosch thing, but start out with um, the fact that through the entire Big Three era, he was extremely underrated because of his ability to shoot the three where he didn't used to be able to, his ability to defend and move and be agile. But uh, what, what what was your kind of your take on him, the blood clots, and all this? How it's how it's turning out? Uh, well, you know, to start off, you're absolutely right. I'm glad I'm glad to hear that other people, not just people closely related to basketball, understand how you know undervalued he was and, and what a essential part of Miami's success he was. His ability to to transition, slide over to the center position, really initiating the first really small ball type offense during mm-hmm. that era. Um, you know, worked so well for Miami. And his, his versatility defensively, offensively, and the expansion of his shooting range was was a huge plus. And, uh, I mean, he was arguably not the most exciting player, but the, the most essential player. That's something that Eric Spolstra, the team's head coach, has said on a number of occasions. As far as the clots are concerned, there's so much that we don't know. Um, you know the team has been very, very, very hush-hush about everything. Uh, they've had some public statements there. Not necessarily refuting what Bosch has said in his, his line of videos. Um, they've just basically given the straight facts as they understand them, which is that a doctor discovered a third recurrence of blood clots in Chris Bosch's system prior to the start of the season. As a result, he wasn't medically cleared to play, and they won't allow him to, to, to you know, go join the team on the floor. And, and to his credit, Bosch, you know, being a, a, an athlete, who's dedicated 20-plus years of his life to this sport, wants to go out there and feels like he's able to play, uh, but the team does not agree, uh, and that's basically it. They're using the medical information that they have available to him and basically saying, look, you can't play for us anymore. So he's still getting paid by the team. Uh, the reality is that he's, he's probably going to get waived at some point in the near future. Uh, we don't have a clear date yet. Uh, you know, I think... The team is looking to waive him probably in mid to late March, which at that point then, if he signs with another team, if he's medically cleared to play, he wouldn't be able to join that team on a playoff roster. So that hurts his chances of joining another team. Um, 
So we're not really quite sure what's going on. It's left this really sour taste in everyone's mouth. I think because Chris is such a, a great, personable guy, you know, a guy who'd really gotten a lot of negativity his way during the big three era, you know, mm-hmm. the two and a half, uh, you know, the big two yeah. and a half, et cetera, from Shaquille O'Neal. Um, you know, he just, a lot of people underappreciated what he did. And, and, you know, to see him lose the last couple of seasons and, and, you know, this third season as well, it's been difficult for a lot of fans to watch. And, and there's no winners here because the team loses out on a great player. They're still wind up paying him a lot of money. He could potentially sign with another team if he's medically cleared, in which case Miami would have to pay What's left, what's left of his contract, which is basically another two seasons at about $25 million per season. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of different issues to, to look into here, and, and none of them are positive for either Miami or Bosch. Yeah, combined with the Wade stuff, it just Riley didn't really get a good deal this year. He always seems like he's able to pull a rabbit out of a hat every season trying to boost the Big Three area, boost their roster during the Big Three era and really just reload instead of having to rebuild. But it's not looking like that in this time for this roster, especially with what you're seeing about Hassan Whiteside and the Dragic trade rumors. Um, so I did want to talk about those picks that are that are owed from the Heat to the Suns. There uh, looks like a 2018 owed first rounder, top seven protected, which turns unprotected in 19. And then in 2021, an owed first rounder from Miami. Um, so it depends on how the team will, the, like you were saying, the Hassan Whiteside regression and the uh, Dragic trade rumors, but those could be some very high picks when it comes down to that time if Riley isn't able to lure a top free agent. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly the case. And, you know, I, I'm, as a long time, not necessarily a fan, but let's say follower of the team, it's just something where I've come to devalue draft picks myself. You know, mm. the, the team has always really tossed those aside haphazardly, with the exception of Winslow this year, uh, Michael Beasley in 2008, Michael and, Beasley. and Dwayne Wade in 2003. They haven't really drafted in the lottery much, you know. So it, it, they just haven't really cared about building through the draft. It's always been acquiring a, you know, a, a big name player like Dragic or Shaquille O'Neal or anybody, or signing them outright in free agency, and so. Um, it's tough to, to figure out exactly how important these draft picks are, but I can understand why Phoenix fans uh, are, are you know, certainly curious to see how Miami's going to continue to fall apart over the next year or two in the hope that they might be able to get a, a nice high draft pick out of it. Yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting. They're, it's funny, you say, you sound like the, 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 the Heat fans are just like um, Dallas, where Dallas like never cares about their draft picks at all. And Phoenix is like the opposite. Like I've been hearing people back in the day, years ago, recently, just like wanting to trade, establish good players for draft picks, just to keep the core young and to keep everybody young. It's like making me so mad because it's like games are won by good players. You have some known commodities. Don't like go for a draft pick that's an unknown commodity. I mean, how wrong have we been about drafts where we think a draft's not deep? And then it is, or it isn't deep, and it's just it's just amazing that people would want to give up good players for draft picks down the line. But these picks certainly look good, and we'll we'll keep track of them and see where they are in a year or two if we can uh, if the Heat are going to be given the Suns the top lottery pick. We'll see. Well, I, I think that attitude's actually shifting a little bit in Miami from the fan base, to be honest with you, because you know over the 21 years that Riley has led the team. 
you know, he's either had Alonzo Mourning or Dwayne Wade on the roster for all of them except this season. This is the wow. first season that he hasn't had either one of those players there. Wow. And so it's easy to look at how those rosters were constructed and that you could continue to add pieces to complement those two superstars, um, you know, either by bringing in other superstars or other high-quality role players. And for the first time ever, like I said, they're not there now. So you don't know exactly how to build this team moving forward. So that's why you have... Heat fans actively discussing whether or not you should trade Whiteside for a draft pick or trade Dragic for a draft pick. So they're they're starting to look more and more into the draft as a way of building this team, particularly when you have young players like Justice Winslow, Josh Richardson, Tyler Johnson, guys in their early 20s who still have some room for growth, and then you can kind of get on the same page as far as when their development uh, you know, timetable takes place. So I think you're starting to see a, a change in, in philosophy among Heat fans. Definitely. Before we get into uh, story time um, about the Big Three era, I wanted to get your take on just kind of what you thought about the Suns, what you thought about any of their players, um, and uh, just give a couple, some thoughts about that. Well, it's interesting, uh, you know, you, you brought up Devin Booker before, and, and that's all, you know, I think a lot of player, a lot of fans rather kind of looked at him being the, the guy who would take over the mantle for Dwayne Wade, and I know that was some of the rumors that we'd heard prior to his selection by Phoenix. Um, you know that that he met with Riley. Riley talked to him. I think Wade even had spoken to him before the draft, and, and it seemed like such a natural fit. You know, you got Wade who's aging, and uh, you know you, you think you're going to need another two guard who will take over that role, and and in many ways be better just because he's such a natural shooter, something that Wade never was. Uh, and, and you'd think that maybe it would have been a great fit for him, but then. You know, obviously the way that draft played out with European picks like Chris F. Porzingis and, and Mario Hazonia getting selected, and of course the you know Charlotte selecting Frank Kaminsky above him. You know, when you know a lot of people forget Justice Winslow was so you know a lot of people predicted him to be a top five pick mm-hmm. uh, up to right before the draft, and so when he slid to tenth, despite whatever deal Danny Ainge and, and you know, the Charlotte Hornets were dangling to Riley. You know, Riley's decided to take Winslow. Guy, he, he had to. He had to take. He had to take him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, he, he did, and uh, it's it's funny because I think a lot of people wonder now whether or not that was the wrong move, and I, I don't think anybody had projected that Devin Booker, as great a shooter as he was collegiately, would be a better, as good an offensive player as he's been in the first year and a half, uh, versus what you see out of Winslow, which is somebody still trying to. To determine what kind of a player he'll be offensively. So, I mean, I, I really like Booger. I think I've seen some people kind of not necessarily as high on him. I, I get the feeling from what you mentioned earlier that he's revered among the Phoenix fan base. Am I way off base there? Um, not exactly. I mean, kind of his shooting has not has been much worse recently with right. such a high usage, and he's just like he's getting to some a little bit of bad habits recently, but. Like, once they had, like, the Suns haven't had an all-star since, like, was it Nash or whatever? Like, like until they have some established players, I think he's, like, a really good two. He's Clay Thompson. Like, it's, a, it's like the easy comp, and it's, like, maybe not even true, but he's, like, a really good two who can really do stuff. He's so clutch. He's so strong. He's revered in the sense that he is mature for someone who just turned 20 years old. He is, I mean... You th- you'd think he's entering his prime in terms of how he handles himself and everything. And he'll learn some stuff. He'll get better at defense. He'll be His floor game is amazing now. He's able to shift and transition defense. He's able to 
get people get around people. He, he's already pretty clutch, and so he has a lot of things that you don't think could be there. I think he's maybe in the top five players from that draft. I mean, but there's some. I mean, Carl Towns, Porzingis. He's right there with D'Angelo Russell. That was an interesting conversation I had with Jabari uh, Jabari Davis from Basketball Insiders um, on the podcast earlier in the year. But uh, so there's lots of little things, but Booker really has a lot to offer. I still think Bledsoe's a better player right now. I think Bledsoe's yeah. the best player, but we'll see, we'll see how it goes. But I mean, I mean, I think I don't know if they, I mean Booker is still growing. He he's now six seven. He was 6'6 six, right. six when he got drafted, 6'7 now. I think he'll get an inch or two before he's done growing here. And wow. by the time he's 22 or 23, he'll be all-star caliber because he's, I mean, they're trying to promote him as one now. He's not going to get it. I was tweeting that out today. Bledsoe's not even going to get in because there's too many good guards, front backward players in the West. But, uh, I mean, that's the sad thing. Bledsoe's never going to get in his entire career probably, and he deserves it because he plays so controlled. His shooting is better, but anyway, yeah, Booker is is quite good. Revered is maybe a little much because of uh, some things that are starting to annoy those who watch on a consistent basis. But he is very talented. Yeah, that's it's interesting, and I'm glad that you have that uh, fresh perspective to point this out. I haven't gotten a chance to see much of Phoenix this season. Just, I mean, mostly the the, the fact that it's a different time and it's hard for me mm-hmm. to get around to it. But uh, and you know, obviously, they haven't been on national television a lot. And, there hasn't been a lot of positives there to watch, I think, from especially from my – I mean, I can't imagine that a lot of people in, in Arizona are watching Heat games this season, to be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, I've always liked Bledsoe, and I, I wonder, you know, whether or not Suns fans are ready to move on. I know the injury issues seem to continuously crop up, and, and although he's healthy this year, you know, what's the that's the feeling there on him? Is, is you know, Does he still have the support of the Suns fan base? It's interesting. So they – so obviously Brandon Knight is like the one we can talk about Brandon Knight forever because I am just he's like the one player I can't kind of stand on the Suns but him and then to a lesser extent Bledsoe they're basically people are saying oh he's not on the uh, timeline of the Suns core so trade them all for picks trade them all for anybody even remotely close to the Suns timeline Bledsoe's like 26 and Knight's like 24 or 25 and they want to trade them to get them on the timeline I'm like do you want to be bad for another half decade um, so I'm like, you, I understand trying to get people, get players better and give them minutes and stuff, but you have, I mean, I think I just saw Tyler Lewis is about to turn 21, Booker's 20, Marquis Chris is just turned 20, and Benner just turned 19. So like you have, you can have almost a starting lineup of, of people who can't drink. Like that is, that's what we've been playing with. It's, it's all that. And then Bledsoe and then like the 30 year old Tucker Dudley and Chandler, and I mean, Len is twenty three, and Warren's twenty three. So like, over half the team is under twenty four, and then there's like a couple thirty year olds just to balance out, and make sure they can play basketball correctly. But uh, yeah, so it's really interesting to see how they want to go so young that they don't understand really how it. I mean, my I'm trying to be a coach eventually. I'm thinking that like it takes something to build a team than just to throw in young players and hope they develop. Like, it takes, it's not linear. It doesn't, the only ingredient to development is not just time and playing basketball. Right, right. And you could probably see a lot of parallels with what's going on in Minnesota, too. I mean, with their mm-hmm. young trio there, 
Uh, and, and, you know, theoretically the team is looking to add veteran leadership because those young players haven't necessarily coalesced in the way that they wanted to. So it, it's interesting. I mean, it's you can't just throw five talented 22-year-olds and hope that you're somehow going to, you know, fall ass backwards into the, the playoffs or something like that. You generally need some established veteran presence there to help, you know, keep things coalescing and, and, and have them on the same page and, and, you know, have the perspective of somebody who's been there before so that you know how to continue to work towards that goal. Which is why Dudley and Tucker and, and Barbosa, I mean, Chandler and Tyson Chandler and Barbosa both have championships and Dudley is probably the best person to be a vet mentor that there ever has been. If, I don't know if you've heard much of Dudley. But he is like the perfect vet presence for a team, for our players, um, how he carries himself and how he does it. But the thing I'm seeing is that I think there is something to a veteran being a mentor when he's not, when you're kind of not as good. Like, how is someone, how is someone supposed to mentor someone if you're not even as, if you're not, if you've already surpassed them? How is, I obviously you can learn and, and understand intellectually, but how is Booker supposed to learn from? Dudley or from Chandler or forever, if he's already better than them than they've ever been in their careers, really. So it's really interesting to see that, which is why it'd be great to some at some point collect all these assets that you're collecting, like the Boston Celtics, and actually get a player out of them, an all-star player. But uh, we'll see what happens with them. So I think it's time for story time. So what I would want to hear some of your stories from the Big Three era. You were by LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, uh, and uh, Chris Bosh, and the whole and I mean Battier and all that. The Game Six, Ray Allen. What do you? What are some things you took away from that? Some insights on the players, the people themselves, and the really atmosphere of that amazing part of NBA history. Yeah, and it's it's. I'm glad to hear you acknowledge it as such because I think that certainly we'll, we'll look back at those four years and, and recognize how unique they were. And I think, um, you know, obviously from the very first way that the team came together in 2010 with the decision mm-hmm. and, you know, Chris Bosch and Dwayne Wade agreeing to sign with the team the day before the decision, you know, you already knew that there was the, the beginnings of something special there. And, and you know, from a, a heat perspective or a heat fan perspective the the ceremony the the two three four five championships that kind of stuff that was great i mean there's no way around mm-hmm. it. and i know a lot of people have looked back at it and said oh it's bragging or what he did with the decision was a, a, a terrible thing how could he trash the city of cleveland like that to me i've always thought that all those things are so vastly overblown and, mm-hmm. and maybe i'm wrong here as somebody who's followed the team for as long as i have but I can't, I can't imagine that if I was in Cleveland or New York or Chicago or any of the other franchises that he allegedly, you know, thumbed up and, and chosen Miami over, I, I can't, I can't imagine being that upset where I'd burn a jersey or hate him as a person. Like, I don't have any ill will towards Kevin Durant years later, and I'm not affiliated with either Oklahoma City or with the Golden State Warriors. So to be honest with you, from a, that kind of perspective, it's just... It was just great to see him choose this team, and, and I think he was, you know, obviously at his peak at that point. It was a, a brave decision on his end, and I think it was one that a lot of people hated, and, and I think it was uh, ridiculous for them to do so. But uh, from a Miami perspective, it was so exciting to get this team together, to, to really be on top and know that you were going to have something special to watch on a nightly basis. And, of course, it didn't quite work out that way from the very first um, and mm-hmm. there was work involved. You saw the potential there, 
but it's you know it's not so easy to just put these three talents together and expect them to melt, you know mesh into something perfect overnight. And it took a lot of different role players to come in there and kind of work together. And you know there was that first season there where you had uh, a lot of different players at the point guard position, at center. You know the, obviously the two, three, and four spots were pretty well established with Bosch, LeBron, and, and Wade. But you had Mike Bibby running the point. You had Eric Dampier at center. I mean, Joel Anthony, who's out of the league now. I mean, you had a lot of different players kind of working their way in there and, and not necessarily the kind of strong bench that you'd need in order to, to you know, really be a great, deep team. And, and somehow, because of the singular talents of their big three, they were still able to make their way to the finals that year. And, of course, Dallas uh, was able to knock them off. Although, you know, again, I, I, a lot of people look at that Mavericks team and were so happy that they were able to beat the villainous heat. <laughs> but to be honest with you, I think a lot of it was just the fact that LeBron really did not play at the, at the level he was supposed to be playing at. I mean, they, they just either it was his, his, you know, either he was just checked out mentally or he was being guarded in such a way that he just didn't feel comfortable. I don't know what it was, but I think you ask any Heat fan what cost him a, a title in 2011. It was LeBron all the way. Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh played really, really well in the finals, and it was LeBron who, who really was checked out and did not play at the high level that we'd expected of him. Yeah. And you know, the, he he did change the following season. Uh, you know, there was the the theoretical or the alleged meeting that took place in the Bahamas between Wade and LeBron James, where Wade had said, "Look, this is your team now. You run it the way that you can, and I'll take a back seat." And we did start to see that following the lockout season, but they also added some really nice veteran pieces to kind of complement them. I mean, they had added Mike Miller in 2010, but following the lockout, they brought in Shane Battier, a really, really good glue guy. They added Richard Lewis, who still had some nice shooting range, and they finally were able to just insert Bosch into the starting position at center, and that was really where the team really took off. I mean, that, that season was phenomenal. Um, you know, Despite the lockout short in season, they really they were they looked so great, so dominant early on, and, and they were able to continue that and, and win their first championship. And, and to me, that was just such a joyous occasion. But somehow they got even better the following season. And, and I think a lot of that was uh, when they added Chris Anderson and he in, in, you know, imbued the team with so much energy. I don't know if you recall that 27-game win streak that took place in between 2013 and 2000. Well, I guess it started off in 2014. Mm-hmm. And... and, and what we've heard is the best story, or one of the best stories of that era was that Shane Battier following, um, it, it was a team, the team was playing at Toronto on Super Bowl Sunday. And as you all know, a lot of the guys in, in the NBA love football. They love getting together and just the experience of Super Bowl Sunday. Mm-hmm. And they, they took it so personally, you know, as kind of, you know, as you probably know, a lot of these guys in the league, they're always looking for perceived slights, something to motivate yep, them through yep. the 82-game grind. Bulletin material. Yeah, exactly. And the fact that they were playing, you know, obviously the best team in the league, the, the, the champion, the, you know, the 2012 champion, whatever, and they're playing in Toronto uh, on Super Bowl Sunday. They can't spend it with their families. They can't be with their boys watching the game, etc. And so they kind of just felt really slighted by this. And then somehow... Um, the team actually, I think they, they booked a, a hotel restaurant just for them. Um, you know, had great food, great drinks were flowing. The game was on, and it was a real team building exercise. And then 
it kind of tied into when Anderson had just been brought onto the team and he was adding this incredible energy and, and you know, just manic intensity and things like this. Even though he was no longer as skilled as he was a couple of seasons prior, uh, you know, he still added something to it. And then Battier gathered the team on the bus and delivered a speech that we've never heard the details of. But supposedly it was something along the lines of these kinds of moments are so special that you cannot let them pass. You have to be able to take advantage of these moments, these opportunities. And from that point, the team rallied so well, so they were so together at that point that they they rattled off the next 26 games and and they won them all. They eventually fell to a a close match against the Chicago Bulls, who they would meet later on in the playoffs that year. And, of course, they would beat the, the... the San Antonio Spurs in, in a you know a historically great series, but that was to me that was a, such a great moment there to see them rattle off those wins at that point before Golden State had, had surpassed them. They were they were the second most winningest team uh, or the second longest win streak in NBA history there, and that was I really thought they were going to break the record to be honest with the 32 game mark that the Lakers had established in the 70s. And I, I really thought that he was going to eclipse that, but they wound up not doing so. But it was just such a great team, so. There was no moment there watching that team where you didn't think they could come back, particularly during that win streak. I mean, there was that one game against Cleveland, and sure, it was a lowly Cleveland team and not the powerhouse that we're talking about now. You know, with Teon Waiters and Kyrie Irving still kind of getting their 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 you know getting their their their, uh, their sea legs as far as entering the NBA. But uh, they were down 27 uh, to the Cleveland Cavaliers at one point in Cleveland, and somehow this you know they came back. And were able to get, I think it was like their 19th or 20th straight win at that point. It was just, they were so amazing at that point. Such a joy to watch. And so many great highlight moments, but just so many great moments in general. I mean, just all the things they did, bonding together as a team, you know, sacrificing money here and there to add veterans. Ray Allen's contributions in the last year or two of his career. A lot of great stories there. Wow. Um, a couple things. One is, how close did that uh, win streak get to the Houston one with Shane Battier and Yao Ming? Yeah, that was a 22 gamer. So uh, funny that he has been part of two 20 plus win streaks in his career. Shane Battier was, yeah, obviously he, he had 22 games in Houston. Um, that was a great team, although they didn't achieve much postseason success. Mm-hmm. It was a little different for for Shane's tenure with Miami. They were able to win the title that season. But yeah, I was uh, mm-hmm. glad you pointed that out because a lot of people tend to forget that he was part of those two really really long streaks. So I think that's currently technically the fourth longest streak at this point because I think they've given. You know, the whole issue with Golden State having won four regular season games the previous season and then 24 straight games to start off last season. Yeah. So they now have 28 straight victories, Miami's third best with 27, and then Houston's 22 uh, is fourth. Yeah. So also, when you mentioned the, the Dallas-Miami uh, finals, I think the reason they lost is because J.J. Barea went crazy. <laughs> and and uh, also Stevenson, was he was doing stuff. He was somehow able to guard LeBron decently well and Dirk is Dirk do you remember that game I think it was a game um, at the time I was all kind of on the Dallas bandwagon for that finals of course you were everybody was I know Um, but didn't Dirk make 24 free throws in a row in one game or something like that it's possible yeah I I, I, I haven't watched much of it he like basically won a game off free throws it was amazing um, well, a lot of people will say that's karmic retribution for Dwayne Wade beating them in 2006. For, there you go. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> totally. There you go. Yeah. Um, so what about that? What about painting a picture of Game Six? Where were you? What? what game Six. Um, Danny Green gets hits a more threes than anyone in Finals history or in the playoffs, I think. 
I think he had hit more threes than anyone in the playoffs yeah. before. And then he goes cold in the finals, and uh, that that was it. And then uh, Ray Allen, they're about to lose. They bring out the white, the uh, yellow tape. They trying to oh, yeah. get ready for the for the championship series. They're getting out the the uh, ceremony. The ceremony. They're, they're all ready to go, and then. They, LeBron and company see it, see them getting ready, and they go on a run. And then Chris Bosh, I believe he he blocks somebody, and then and then well, he gets. Well, that was at the the waning moments of uh, the regular uh, regular world, the, the forty eight minutes of time there. I think that was he blocked Tony Parker there on the corner. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I'm sorry, that was actually an overtime, and that was to preserve the win there. And I mean, a lot of people forget that. That was Game Six, and that was just a tie of the series. And yep. of course, you have to go into Game Seven, which was a great game in and of itself. You know, Game Seven was a, a tremendous game. Game Six, look, I mean, I wasn't covering it; I was watching the game at home, and um, I had, <laughs> as, as fans are wont to do, and I'm a little embarrassed now. This was before I'd even discovered the the world of writing about basketball. I'd mm-hmm. never written anything, never heard a podcast or anything like that, so. Uh, I've only been doing this for three years myself, and, and this is this is well before that. So um, there I was watching the game, and uh, <clears throat> I had a, a lucky shirt that I had worn for each of their playoff games, <laughs> and uh, uh, I hadn't washed that shirt during any of their playoff games either. So um, it was starting to develop a you know quite a, a personality of its own, shall we say? <laughs> And uh, I watched it, and then they were, as you remember, they were down by a significant margin in the waning moments of that game, and I, I really thought they were done. So I stormed into my bedroom. Uh, my wife uh, was there looking at me, and she asked what happened, and I said, oh, they're done. This is it. It's over. And I, I take the shirt off, throw it into the general direction of the hamper, and just sit down there on the edge of the bed with my head in my hands going, I can't believe it. It's come down to this. I can't, I can't believe that their season's over. I really thought they were going to somehow – find a way to pull it out because again that that moment if it turns a little differently let's say you know if, if Ray Allen doesn't hit that shot and, and then all of a sudden you're year three of this big three experiment uh, do you trade Chris Bosch does does do you move another player does everything blow up do you fire Spolstra does LeBron uh, he, have too much pressure and can't get over the hump and he never right. wins a title in his life can you, yeah. do you remember how much pressure was on him before oh, he won yeah. the first one, and the relief on his face when he won. Oh, that mm. to me is one of the greatest moments in 2012 when they when they bring the trophy out and he sees it, and that's that's pure and, and really true feeling. Like yeah. I think in two, the, the following season, already, I don't want to say he was too cocky, but I think there was like a feeling of expectation there. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 2012, when he beat the Oklahoma City Thunder, that look of joy on his face, it was very similar to what I saw this past season when Cleveland won the title. Yeah. Both of the things he promised, the things that the expectations he heaps upon himself as a businessman, as a person, as a father, and just the way he's able to deliver on the promise. I mean, it was pure joy, and it was really good to see that, even though at the time, I like I think Kevin Durant may be my favorite player in the world. And that was kind of crushing, but uh, and I was watching with them. I'm a Heat fan, so that was super fun. But uh, so it was, but definitely the joy on his face was kind of amazing, and kind of glad that he got those two. But now he can stop winning and let other people win. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know how I don't know how legitimate it is that this you know supposed chasing of Michael Jordan six rings. I yeah, mean, it seems like 
I mean, I understand that Lee Jenkins had that kind of connection with him and he was able to get him to open up. And maybe that's been driving him all along. He's just never been able to talk about it. But at the same time, I, I mean, I, I think personally it's not very likely that he'll catch up. To oh, Jordan I don't think he will. Minutes. No way. He doesn't have the shooting when his when his uh, athleticism leaves him to to be enough to be good enough while he makes the money he does to have enough help to win another title. Like I don't think they're winning this year. I don't think they're and and the odds go down every other year after this. Okay, I, I mean, there's also the part of LeBron that I kind of, I think you kind of have to ignore a little bit when you're, you know, he's on the team that you follow. I mean, as much as everybody wants him on their team, there's certainly a lot of self-created trauma that comes with it. He yeah. likes to be the center of the attention, and, and I think it's understandable considering his past and, and the kind of history he's had. Look, I mean, he's had cameras in his face since he was a teenager or maybe even 14, earlier. You know, he's, 14, something like that. I'm sorry? Like, since he was, like, 14, I remember right. like, the age his kid is now. Yeah, yeah, yeah good <laughs> point. I mean, and, and so, and look, and it's and he does yeah. now as a parent, he has to do what he can to keep his kids out of the spotlight, but that wasn't the case with him, you mm-hmm. know? He was thrust into it at a time when, even before social media and everything else, and, you know, there was his first televised high school game on ESPN, too. I mean, and a lot of people complained about that, you know, that, that, that they were exploiting high schoolers, and now it's fairly commonplace where you have high school football games and things like that and, and so much of that so much of the world and the way sports are covered has changed and it's because of him and you know, there's a lot that that you know that how that affects people following the team and, and uh, it's not a lot it's not easy to deal with sometimes I think. definitely also just a post note here on that Ray Allen 3 was like the most sure thing of all time going in Ray Allen is like best three point shooter I mean he's not the best three point shooter of all time because it seems like that's going to be Steph Who's like? Was he just passed? He's fifteenth all time right now, as a twenty-seven year old or whatever. Steph Curry is kind of ridiculous, but um, Ray Allen is like so on money with all the stories you hear about him playing, practicing, thousands of shots in the morning before games and stuff, and his dedication to keeping his body in shape and is just really repetitive, amazing way he can make shots. It's that was that was just going in. It was going in. Well, I, I wish I could say I had that same level of confidence, but I, I was I was really struggling. So, I, you know, to finish up the story, you know, I was on the edge of the bed, and I just said to myself, you know what, and, and I, I can't. I, even if it, even if this is going to change the course of franchise history, I don't want to not watch it. And so I went back out there, and somehow they were, you know, much closer than they had been just a few <laughs> seconds prior. So, I, you know, I was able to watch the shot although it was with fingers firmly in place of my eyes there in front of my eyes and it was just you know I, I barely watched it but I watched it I sat through it and I sat through it over time and, and I'm glad I did to be honest with you and I don't blame those fans I know a lot of people you know beat up the heat fans that left the arena early and things like that it's it's, it's hard to watch your team lose in the waning moments of a game and maybe for they're a lot of franchises or fans from other franchises they'll say oh no I would have stuck it out to the last second can't really say that until you're in that position to know what it's like to have lost, you know, a second finals in three seasons. It would have been very difficult to watch them do so. And I can't, I can't blame those fans for leaving early. Plus, the traffic in Miami sucks. So any minute <laughs> that you can get ahead of it, I, I totally support you. Yeah, I remember you saying before about all the fans about mad about LeBron burning the shirt. I think that's yeah. the the tendency of writers 
to not be so pa- not be. I mean, they are passionate, but they are much more measured. Like I find that with people I talk to, they're freaking out, they're mad that the team's losing or that they're bad. It's like we understand why they're losing and why we don't have the expectation that they shouldn't be any better than they are, and they or why they're good or anything. So I think it definitely gives us a different perspective on the team that's less fluctuating, may we say. So yeah, it's interesting absolutely. for sure. Well, this has been a fantastic discussion, David. So glad you could join us. Why don't you plug your stuff and we'll get out of here. Yeah, uh, everybody can follow me at Twitter at DRAMIL13. That's D-R-A-M-I-L 13. And I'm the co-host of the Locked on Heat podcast. I also write for a couple of different places, uh, most notably for the Step Back and for Fan Sided. But uh, you can find all of my work there on my website via Tumblr. It's all on my Twitter page. So uh, thanks so much for having me on. It's always great to talk about other teams and to see different perspectives around the country and to always talk about Miami. So I'm, I'm glad I came aboard. Definitely. Um, so this is the Solar Insights Podcast. We have a show once a week, maybe twice a week. Um, check me out on Twitter at Eric underscore Saar, S-A-A-R. And uh, like, share the podcast with everybody you can, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. See you later. Bye. Bye.